Whose example has been most influential in your life? Maybe it's someone we all know, someone famous like Mahatma Gandhi, whose uh, example of non-violent resistance was a major influence on the behaviour of some of the anti-Vietnam War protesters of the 60s. Men like David Dellinger, Mahatma Gandhi was an inspiration to him. He's one of the Chicago Seven put on trial in 1969 for their protest behaviour and he features in this year's great film of that name. Often it can be less famous people who are, whose example is influential. For me, one of my big examples was my father. Dad had left school well before he was 15 and he never did a lot to further his education before that time anyway. But to this day, I recall how hard Dad worked six days a week as a, as a driveway attendant in a mobile petrol station in Caringbar or service station, as Dad's work, in short it was, in those days. Putting the petrol in the car, checking your tyres, checking the oil, checking the water, doing the windscreens. He worked hard. He worked really hard to provide for his family and because that was what his job required. He took pride in doing his job well and that has always been a great example for me. Whose example has been influential in your life? I raise this question of example because in today's passage, the Apostle Paul offers himself to the Philippians as an example. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 17 in your Bibles. Chapter 3, verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And I guess it's no surprise that the one chosen, as we saw in Acts chapter 9, to be the apostle to the Gentile, the non-Jewish world, that he should be promoted as an example to people like those Gentiles in Philippi. It's no surprise that he would have that role. But the problem is that Paul is rarely present with the Philippians. His attitudes, of course, come through in his letters, but day to day they need some living models. So have a look again at verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Wouldn't it be great to belong to a church where everyone was an example of Christian living to everyone else? Would that be a help to you? It would to me. Today I want to see the three things Paul highlights about his example to the Philippians, three things that they and you should look for in others. The first thing is confidence, reliance on Christ and not oneself. It's about where you put your confidence of acceptance with God. And it's not an academic pondering here. The Philippians are encountering people who are giving them a different example to copy. They are Jewish background Christians who are pressuring the Philippian Gentiles to submit to the Jewish circumcision practice. The male's foreskin has to be removed to show that they belong to the people of God is probably the argument. And they're probably urging adoption of the strict Jewish food laws as well. Before he explains why this is a very bad idea, Paul has some choice words for those uh, people from those Jewish background Christians. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, 
those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He doesn't like them very much. Because they are evildoers by urging the Philippians to rely on their performance of the Old Testament law rather than faith in Christ for their relationship with God. The, the Philippians started with faith in Christ. Do you remember from a Bible reading a, a few weeks ago, we saw Lydia and the others who were down at the river and Paul and his team shared Jesus and Lydia became a believer. And then the Philippian jailer and his family, they heard about Jesus. Good sirs, what must I do to be saved? They told them about putting their faith in Jesus and they were baptised that very night. The Philippians have started with faith in Christ. So what a disaster if they listen to these other teachers and start relying on Jewish traditions. And this is where Paul holds himself up as an example. He was the biggest Jewish law follower of them all. So it's really striking when he says all that was rubbish, is rubbish. He talks about the flesh, which by that he means what a person does with their own body and mind. Have a look at verse 3. It's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. If your standing before God was dependent on what you do, if anyone had grounds to put their confidence in their good life, it was Paul in his former life, as a Pharisee, he, he was dedicated to obeying every Jewish law to the nth degree. He was very committed, as evidenced by the zeal with which he even persecuted Christians, as we saw in our Acts 9 reading today. And see that final big summary assertion? As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. The problem that Paul discovered was he might have been faultless at external law-keeping, but it didn't change what was inside. It didn't change the heart, which meant he couldn't stand before God relying on his own righteousness. Well, he could try, but of course God would see through Paul. Paul needed the, a greater righteousness conferred on him. And here is how Paul uh, once explained it to the Apostle Peter. I'm drawing on what Paul says in chapter 2 of Galatians at verse 15. So not Philippians, it's Galatians. Just I think it helps us understand what's going on here. Paul says this to the Apostle Peter. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Can you see what an excellent example Paul is of someone who's learnt to put his confidence or to boast in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done rather than what Paul has done, his own religious and civil achievements. 
Those past achievements are of no use to Paul when it comes to having a relationship with God. He views them then as rubbish, as useless compared to the surpassing value of relying on and knowing Jesus. Verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, their garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is this example to the Philippians, though he has big law-keeping credentials, bigger than they'll ever get through undertaking a painful circumcision procedure. Though he's got all that, he relies not on that, but on a righteousness that comes from God that is only gained when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for sins. He died because there was no one good enough to stand before God on the basis of their own righteousness. Jesus, the perfectly righteous one who never sinned, was the perfect substitute for all people. And the amazing thing about God, something I'll never understand, is that God accepts Christ's death in punishment for my sin and yours when we put our faith in him. And he treats you with Christ's perfect righteousness, even though you aren't, so you can stand in his presence for eternity. We call that grace. Now, given that trade, why would anyone want to rely on their own righteousness? Of course, people do it all the time. People do it all the time because it's humbling to admit that you aren't as good a person as you think and that you need Christ to save you. People do it all the time because repenting and putting your faith in Christ also means you're accepting him as Lord and people don't want to have someone tell them how to live their life. As Paul will say in verse 18 of our passage, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is in their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. So those who live or support a very different sexual ethic to Jesus' reserving of sex for within heterosexual marriage proudly can proclaim that love is love and trumpet their tolerant woke credentials, yet their attitudes that they glory in will shame them before God when they meet him. Or the people who've contributed to their society, they've raised their family, they've helped out at school canteens and PNC fundraisers, they've done surf club beach patrols for years, they haven't murdered anyone and they were faithful in marriage and they've been respected by their work colleagues and they've paid their taxes and at their funeral that is what people will glory in. But when they stand before God, it'll be, shame. it'll be a shame if that's all they have to point to. It'll be a shame if they haven't given Jesus a proper place in their life. Relying on yourself is not a good way to live. Better we imitate the examples of those who acknowledge their need and rely or put their faith in Jesus. One of the most able ministers I know is a great example for me. Not because of his preaching or his church growth insights, but it's because his favourite saying, it's not his own, uh, he didn't originate it, he's, he's ripped it off from John Newton of Amazing Grace fame. 
But it actually keeps, uh, this saying reminds, is a great, I just think it's a great example. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Surround yourself with people who are examples of faith in Christ and not of themselves. That's the first uh, point of example to see. Another point that Paul brings out about himself, let's move to that. I wonder if you've known someone who you'd describe as obsessed about someone or something. I have a third cousin who's exactly the same age as me. I remember when we visited them in Tamworth as a young teenager being astonished that her walls were covered in posters, she was wearing Scottish tartan clothes and she could recite all the published lyrics of a Scottish pop group, a boy band before they called them that, the Bay City Rollers. It was quite amazing. I had a crush on her, but I didn't have a chance beside Eric and Derek. (laughs) Or the person who is so into birds that they've studied books, done lots of field trips, and can even identify a species just by hearing the call. For those who don't share those interests, we might think they're obsessed, but for those inside there's a respect in, and they get labels like expert or authority or master, even virtuoso. Their interest is more than just intellectual or something that's occasionally dabbled in. They really want to know their subject. And when it comes to following Christ, you need examples who seriously want to know and grow in Christ. And that's the second thing to look out for in someone. Paul's Reliance on Christ, it's not just intellectual, so it makes him a great example for the Philippians, and he cites that at verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul isn't saying he wants to know who Christ is, he already knows that. He, he wants to experience Christ, he wants to actually know almost, it's almost know what it's like to be Christ. He wants to experience this ongoing relationship Christ. He's talking about a living, serving relationship with Christ, experiencing suffering where it's necessary and being strengthened by Christ as he does. Well, notice he talks about becoming like him in his death. Does that mean Paul wants to die on the cross as well? Well, no. You read chapter 2 last week with Craig, becoming like him in his death. Remember what that means? It's taking the very nature of a servant. Paul's willing to experiencing suffering so as to be a servant of Christ. And we know he does experience suffering as he's spoken about Christ at different places, well, at different places and different times at the hands of the Romans and the Jews and their whips and their prisons and their angry mobs. Paul has experienced suffering for knowing the Lord. Part of his relationship with Jesus is that he serves him even when it's hard. Along with the suffering, though, Paul also experiences the Lord's sustaining. That's what he means there in verse 10 by to know the power of his resurrection. Following Christ's resurrection, he sent his spirit into all his believers. Uh, That spirit had a role in raising Christ, but he still works now in, in every believer to powerfully sustain, guide, 
equip believers to grow, to endure, to serve, and even in the midst of suffering. What's the example then that Paul's presenting here to the Philippians? He's, he's someone who's serious about deepening his relationship with Christ, experiencing suffering if he must, but relying on the Lord to sustain him through it. And remember again, the end of verse 17, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So can I ask you, who are those good models around you, who are models around you of being serious about growing in their relationship with Christ, about knowing him better, uh, looking to the Lord to sustain them through suffering? Who are they? In contrast, uh, Paul is critical of those in verse 19, those enemies of the cross for whom their God is their stomach. It's all about comfort and consumption, not service. They please their desires, not God's. They aren't good examples. The person who's trying to grow, trying to serve, even they might mess up, but they're trusting on God, they're looking to God to help them. They're the good example. Of all the famous inventors and inventions in our world, I wonder which one required the most perseverance from the makers or took the longest to make. Thomas Edison, the American inventor uh, from the, at the turn of the 20th century, is often given the title of most persevering. That's because his invention of the electric light globe took anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000, sorry, 1,000, yes, to 10,000. I had to reread it. I thought I'd made a mistake, but it is right. 1,000 to 10,000 failed attempts to invent the electric light globe, depending on your source. Even if it's 1,000, don't you reckon that is outstanding? How many people here would have given up long before the thousandth attempt. He didn't lose sight of the big picture, uh, the goal he had to see his theory come uh, to fruition. It's important not to lose sight of the big picture. And when that big picture is heaven and eternity, lose sight of that to your own cost. And this is the third and final aspect of Paul's example that he highlights for the Philippians. It's his hope for the future. Paul isn't just worldly in his horizon. He's not so heavenly minded, though, to be of no earthly use, as we saw in our last point. He dedicates himself to costly sacrifice of Jesus, sacrificial service. But he's not so comfortable that life is all about the here and now. So as he seeks to live out his relationship with Jesus, he's focused, verse 11, on somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Don't be misled by somehow. It isn't that Paul has doubts over whether he'll be raised from the dead, and he, as if he doesn't know how it'll happen, because he knows it'll be through Christ's power. It's just that he doesn't know what the road ahead is for him. He doesn't know God's timing. That's all in God's hand. Paul leaves it there. But the thing he holds on to is the certainty of the resurrection. Have a look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Ever Elsewhere in we, we, his writings, we see Paul cite the resurrection 
as the reason to keep serving Christ even in the midst of suffering. So he's critical of those enemies of the cross of Christ whose mind is only, verse 19, set on earthly things. In Freshwater, I guess he would say, only set on home, health, holidays and happiness, only presuming, pursuing the aspirations of the stomach God we saw a moment ago. But living life without Jesus is short-sighted because he's the king and saviour of the world. So when it comes to judgment day, as Paul notes there in verse 19, their destiny is destruction, sadly. The big picture for Paul and all Christians is summarised there in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious bodies. Do you notice um, the certainty that Paul says, our citizenship in heaven? It's not our citizenship will be in heaven. It's because um, they rely on, he's relying on Christ and his righteousness. He actually can say, I've got two feet in heaven, effectively. He knows where he's going to be. He's trusting in God's promise. He, it gives him the big picture of life. In the light of that future, Paul's able to persevere in serving, suffering, waiting, which makes me remind you again of verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Do you know others like Paul who have sight of the big picture in the midst of suffering and the challenges of their lives? Keep your eyes on them. If you don't, start looking around because there are many in our church who do, who trust that one day they'll have a resurrection body to replace the bits that don't currently work properly or who trust that one day they'll see the loved one that they miss again in eternity after they're both resurrected or those who are patiently waiting the return of Christ, serving him in the meantime, just getting on with life. There's, there's so many in our church like that. It sometimes seems a bit too much when we talk about examples. It sometimes seems a bit too much to expect that of a talented but young footballer. But they're put up as role models. But I like what NBA basketball star of the late uh, 90s, uh, Charles Barkley, said. Just because I can dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Professional athletes should not be role models. Hell, I know drug dealers who can dunk. Can Can drug dealers be role models too? Of course, sports people nowadays don't always get the choice. Their contracts and their paychecks tend to make them a role model, whether they like it or not. But, you know, Christians don't really have a choice either. We should all be the people who humbly rely on Christ, who want to know Christ better as we serve him, and who live as if there's more to life than what we see with a hope for our eternal future. We should all be examples to each other. Now, throughout this talk, I've been asking you to think who's an example for you to emulate. But really, what I should have asked is how is your life an example to anyone? Let me pray. Father, we pray that you will so grow us 
in our reliance on Christ, in our desire to know you better as we serve you and rely on you, and in our confidence in eternal life and the hope of heaven. Please grow us in all those things so we would be an example to each other. And thank you for those who are examples to us. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to see the good of each other's example and encourage each other. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen.